Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. In this episode 356, we feature award-winning novelist Susan Zorinda and her latest novel, The Girl from the Red Rose Motel. The best-selling author Ron Rash calls deeply moving without veering into sentimentality. And the award-winning novelist Donna Everhart calls a skillfully crafted story of hope, compassion, and resilience. This novel may cause you to think back to your own days in high school and how you might have navigated that period in your life better, how you might have been a more empathetic person than you were, or cause you to focus a little bit more on how difficult life can be for those less fortunate trying to navigate the teen school years. And if you like what you hear, you might want to check out our episode 181 when Susie and I talked about her novel Bells of Eli, another coming-of-age story in a small town. Susie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much, Landis, for having me back. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, yeah. And congratulations on the publication of The Girl from the Red Rose Motel. I really enjoyed the book. Oh, thank you. You're most kind to have read it. Yeah, no, it was fun. It was really interesting. And uh, before we talk about the book and get into it, um, I want to talk a few minutes about you because uh, I know that you taught English uh, for 30-some years on the college level and at the high school level teaching AP students. Right. Um, I'm just wondering, um, let's talk a little bit about your experience teaching high school students because I know that your teaching muse probably influenced some of what uh, appears in this book. Yes, they, they most definitely do. I had a long career um, in the community college, and then the last 10 years of my teaching career, I went to Spartanburg High School, where I had a kind of, for lack of a, a better way to know how to say it, a kind of a bipolar day. So I taught um, all of the 12th grade a- English AP students, you know, the brightest, mostly the most affluent um education highly valued in the family, uh, wonderful students. My fifth class was something called reading strategies. And that was a class that students were put in to help them try to pass what was at that time the South Carolina exit exam, because they were all reading usually far below grade level and they, their writing skills were far below the level as well. And, and, and so I would go from this you know, struggling group of students, and and many of them were impoverished, to the complete opposite. And so that situation inspired me to develop the characters of Hazel Smalls and Sterling Lovell, because Sterling is a very brilliant um, and and from an affluent family young man. And Hazel, though a very bright young woman, is from an impoverished family that lives in a rundown motel. Yeah, we're going to talk about both them in a little bit here and the motel, of course, because the title is <laughs> on the cover of the book. <laughs> but, uh, but, um, but, but this idea of teaching, I'm just curious, you've taught uh, many years. I'm wondering, um, what do you think is different for high school students today from when you first started teaching? Um, Very good question. I, I was one of the lucky ones, and still it was really difficult. I 
got to teach in a high school that was had my back, I guess you'd say. They were the administration was supportive of faculty. Um, they assumed faculty was professional and and treated us as such. And we had pretty good um, administrative discipline policies for students. That said, I taught my first four years. I was I was only a child then. I taught my first four years in the late 70s, early 80s at, at a high school, at another high school in the county. And then I, I went to the community college for 20 years. And then I'm back in high school the last 10 years. Tremendous difference in student attitude. You know, when I, I mean, yes, I had mischievous students in the late 70s who were going to cut up. But if you you know, if you told them, no, no more of that. You can't stuff any more snakes in the water fountain or whatever it was. <laughs> Ernie, oh God, that boy who put the snake in the water fountain. I'll never forget it. But he was duly punished and he pretty much cleaned up his act after that. Fast forward 20 years. Um, students ha had much more sense of entitlement, you know, and I think it's become even much more that way since I retired in 2013, that it's, it's almost like the student is the customer and the teacher is supposed to, um, you know, fit their, fit their needs. And rather than the teacher being sort of the head of the um, totem pole up here and students you know, learning from that. Now, I'm, I'm exaggerating because I, I did. I was so lucky. I, I taught really, really good students who were mostly respectful. But I, I know a lot of stories from, from colleagues and even from my own daughter where such is not the case. And a, and a lot of it is that there's not the accountability that there was when I first started teaching. It, in other words, something goes amiss or what have you. I mean, there's there's policies and discipline in place that takes care of it regardless. But now it's like we're walking around on eggshells more. Does that make yeah, sense? It does. We're going to talk about one of your characters, um, the the teacher uh, in the novel. I think her name is Angela uh, Whitmore. And, yeah, uh, Wilmore. Mm -hmm. Wilmore, yes. Um, and she deals with uh, those issues of entitlement, but sort of it's a trickle-down kind of thing. And maybe that's what's going on, I, I suppose, that uh, – the children are being taught that, but um, we're going to get to a scene. I'm going to ask you about involving the <laughs> reverend who comes to the oh. school. But before we do that, uh, maybe the problems and pressure students face today, are they more intense uh, today than I they were? They, I think they probably are. I, I think when I first started teaching, um, I don't think they felt the pressure, the kind of pressure that even, you know, high school students uh, feel today. There's a, <clears throat> great deal of competition. And again, we're talking about these top tier students, a whole lot of competition, a whole lot of pressure. Are you doing this? Are you doing that? Are you taking six AP classes? No, I'm taking seven AP classes. It just, you know, a lot of that kind of um, academic pressure. And then, you know, on the other end, you know, where the kids who Unfortunately, education is not valued at home because they're just trying to survive mm -hmm. from day to day. And, and so you're constantly trying to motivate them and try to help them understand that if, if they can read better, if they can get 
education, if they can graduate from high school, they have a chance to cycle out of this, the circumstances in which they've lived their lives. So it's, it's just a, both ways. So um, tell us, uh, give us a description before we get into the characters here uh, of the Red Rose Motel. Oh, <laughs> the Red Rose Motel is a is a an old rundown place, and you wouldn't want to stay there. I wouldn't want to stay there. No normal human being, if if he or she didn't have to, would stay there. And it is very much based on real places in my community where the homeless shelter live. I have a friend who is was she's been retired a good while a guidance counselor but when she began to realize that these children were living in motels she started um an organization called cast care accept teach share did i get that right no care accept share teach Hmm. and she formed this nonprofit that tries to help these families let's say raise enough money for a deposit to get out of there. That's one of their biggest problems. But she took me on a tour. She took me on a tour of, of some of these places. And it's, it's just, it's abysmal. Uh, mm. They're, you know, the plumbing is horrible. The toilets leak. Um, there's mold. Uh, mattresses are horrid. Whole families sleep in this, what, you know, 12 by 14 motel room. Yes, it's better than being on the street, but not much. There's no kitchen, uh, just a a microwave usually. I've got another friend who started another organization to give crock pots to some of these families living in motels and then give them these ingredients like beans and rice and things so that they could maybe have an actual meal because they have no no way to really cook. Yeah, and in your uh, book here, uh, the girl from the Red Rose Motel, her name is uh, Hazel Small. She's a high school junior, and to to anyone that sees her at school, they wouldn't know that she lives uh, at the Red Rose Motel, and it's not something she wants people to know, right? Right. She's ashamed. Yeah. She's she's well aware of of her circumstances because she didn't always live in those circumstances. I mean, she was never you know, an upper class, whatever child, but certainly, I mean, her family lived in a duplex and they had a yard and they had neighbors and they had bedrooms and a kitchen. And, um, but her father, um, stopped working for his brother. Um, that's probably too much story to go into. It's in the novel, but they, they didn't have enough income with her mother to stay and they got evicted and they ended Mm -hmm. up in the Red Rose Motel. And that happens all the time. Yeah, you said to me in a previous interview that um, if you're not invested in the characters, uh, then you don't feel what they feel. And um, I'm wondering um, how it was that you got invested and, and went to these emotional places with these characters because they, you do they are they are going to some kind of dark places here. Um, what was it that you wanted you to make uh, to spend some of your time with? Uh, High school junior, Hazel Smalls. Well, I just, I wanted, I wanted to develop a character who is in these unfortunate circumstances, but who has the determination and the chutzpah, if you will. She, she wants to get out. And, and I had students like that. I had students like that in reading strategies. I'm not really aware except for one 
male student who lived in a motel. I don't really know where they lived. I just know that many of them were impoverished and, and some were very, very determined. And I remember a young woman in particular, her name was Rikisha. I did not consciously think about Rikisha when I was writing the book, but after I finished it, 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 all of a sudden I kind of remembered her and she had written me this thank you note. Um, at the end of the year, she passed. She was maybe on a fifth grade reading level and she worked so hard and she was very sweet. She was, um, was not disrespectful or anything. She was very appreciative and she couldn't afford a, a store-bought card. And so she wrote me a thank you note on an old piece of broken off poster board that she probably picked up out of a trash can. She drew a flower on one side and on the other side, she wrote me this note thanking me and saying that she never thought that she could accomplish what she accomplished and that she had. And she, you know, was looking forward to her life and that it was just a really beautiful note. I, I found it. I, I saved a lot of those notes over the years and I found it and I thought, well, I wonder if Rikisha was was in my subconscious, and I didn't really know it when I developed Hazel. Yeah. That's why teachers teach, right? That is why teachers teach, yeah. Mm. We, we love, I mean, I love the literature and the language, but I, I, if I could, I love the students too in the sense that if I could make some kind of difference or feel like I had helped a kid, you know, go go forward. So contrast uh, Junior Hazel Smalls with uh, Sterling Lovell. He's the senior who's very privileged. Uh, he's smart. Um, he's got parents that are very wealthy. A uh, little bit of a twist. The father owns the Red Rose Motel. Yes. <laughs> which, and, and he becomes, uh, they end up in detention together. Um, and uh, he meets her and sort of falls head over heels with her. And so throughout this novel, um, he's sort of, they're trying to navigate this uh, distance that exists between uh, what he has and what she doesn't have. She's very reluctant to go there. Um, he's having a hard time understanding perhaps why she doesn't, and he's trying to tread lightly, but doesn't always do that very well. So what, um, and, and that's kind of one of the themes you've got in the book here is this, um, idea of, um, you know, different people from different backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, trying to fit in together in a high school setting. Talk about that. Well, I, I think people are a whole lot more alike than they are different. And I think people from different socioeconomic backgrounds have a lot to learn about and from each other. And Sterling, though he is very cocky and, and self-assured and very smart. He had his own issues as a child when he was ostracized. He was overweight. He had these great big ears and he was made fun of. So when he meets Hazel, she's a beautiful girl to start with. Well, when he meets her, there's something probably deep down from way back that, that reaches out something in his soul that connects to her besides her obvious physical beauty. He's got this blonde, what you would think would be typical, stereotypical girlfriend in the high school because he's a popular boy and his girlfriend, Courtney, is popular. But he feels 
hemmed in. He feels boxed in and he feels like everything has been set out in front of him, what he's supposed to do, who he's supposed to do it with and, and so forth. And Hazel is a breath of fresh air for him when, when he meets her, they, they land in in-school suspension for completely different reasons. Um, he steps over the line with his English teacher. And that, by the way, there are a couple of things in the book that are based on life. And that's one of them. <laughs> I really right? did teach a group of eight miscreant, brilliant boys who called themselves the crazy eights. And they had truly been terrorizing classrooms since middle school. And no one, again, this is what I'm talking about, walking on eggshells. Yeah. No one had ever called them on it. All these teachers dealt with them year after year. Guidance counselors would try to keep them separated as much as possible. And I think it was because their parents were big in the community. They had a lot of influence. These kids really were smart. They were going to great schools. And when I, I think there were actually three of them in my real life class that day um, who just wouldn't let up. And I had to quit teaching. And I had them put in in-school suspension and after that, every year, my, my year would start with, oh, you're the one that put the boys in in-school suspension. Went, no, 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 no. <laughs> they did that to themselves. Yeah. But I never had one more bit of trouble out of any of them after that. It's just well, They just needed to be disciplined. It, it makes sense then. It makes sense then while the third character uh, in this book, uh, Angela Wilmore, uh, comes in. You, you've given her some... Uh, Obstacles as well. She's uh, divorced. Uh, she's in a new school. Um, she thinks that... Uh, well, she's a widow. And she, widow. Oh, that's right. Yeah. She's yeah. a widow. I'm sorry. She's a widow. She's in a new school. Um, she's trying to navigate that. She's trying to work with the students. She doesn't sometimes feel like the principal backs her up, but then finds out maybe he does, and then maybe she has feelings for him, but how's that going to work? Because she's a teacher and he's a principal. So these are all issues that you witnessed probably yeah. when you were well, teaching. Well, actually, I didn't witness any. Now, I did witness some um, faculty romances, but right. nothing. Right. I, I don't know of one between a teacher and a principal. Right. That was, you right. know, completely fabricated. But, yes, I mean, I, I did want to kind of bring in some of the, the difficult issues that not only teachers have, but administrators have them too. You know, it's, it's not, it's not just the, the, the classroom, you know, boots on the ground people. It's, it's the principals too. I mean, I used to feel so sorry for the vice principals at the high school because all they did all day really was deal with trouble. You know, mm. one, one thing after another, um, that's, that's what they dealt with. And then of course, Hazel, you know, ends up in ISS because she's poor and she, her, junior ROTC uniform is dirty and she can't afford to have it clean. And she tries to kind of fake out her um, sergeant by just wearing the pants and wearing a, a different top. And he calls her out on it. And he, it, I think it shows his ignorance. You know, he, he doesn't, it doesn't occur to him why she wouldn't really wear a uniform. And so he, he punishes her um, thinking that will, you know, fix the problem, but you can't fix the problem when there's no money for dry cleaning. Do you remember where you were when the idea for this book came to you? Now, there's a good question. The, you know, the, the character that really came to me first was Sterling because he, was, he is an amalgam of those eight boys that I taught. And that incident 
always stayed with me. It was very dramatic. I had teachers all over the school coming to thank me for what I had done. And, and they're second semester seniors. And I'm thinking, why did it take this long for these boys to be brought to task? And it was one of my first years after I had left the community college. So I, you know, I didn't have all this history and all these years of teaching in high school. And I guess the, the kids' reaction to it, the faculty's reaction to what I did, it just always stayed with me. And so Sterling was the character who came to me first to develop. And then mm. after I put him in ISS, I thought, well, what's going to happen to him here? <laughs> and Hazel was born. And then yeah. Hazel needed a mentor. Um, and I decided to give her an English teacher um, because I know about teaching English as her mentor. And then she called out for a story arc of her own. Yeah. And there you go. There you go. Oh, this is probably a good time for a reading. You've got a little section of the book you're going to read. Uh, you can set it up or say anything about, about okay. it you want. Well, we've, just, we've been talking about Sterling and Hazel meeting and in-school suspension. So that's what I'll read that little section um, when he's in there. It's a lowly place he never thought he would find himself. So I, I think that's as good a place as as any um, to read. Sterling had nothing to do. So his eyes roamed room 252. The room held a subtle but definitely foul odor. He concluded it came from partly unwashed, partly from unwashed hair and flesh, along with stale cigarette smoke sealed in clothing. His view grazed across this bleak bunch. The guys wore t-shirts with inane slogans like blink if you want me and busting hours to kick yours. But in spite of the cold weather outside, many of the girls wore tops barely reaching the required coverage. He could get used to this look. His gaze stopped on a girl beside him in row two. Her tank top was tight, pressing across a pair he could tell were exquisite. She was exotically beautiful with dark deep eyes and golden skin and gorgeous full lips. He'd never seen this girl in the halls, much less in his classes, populated mostly by wasps like himself. Not that Sterling didn't know to appreciate his advantages, but sometimes, like right now, it felt like he was stuffed into a too small box with the flaps folded tight across the top, suffocating him. It was probably at least part of the reason he went overboard in Ms. Wilmore's class and ended up here in ISS for stimulation, for fresh air. Everything was so mapped out, what to do, who to be with, where to go. He considered the girl sitting across from him again. No way was she affected like most of the girls he knew. She was real. He could tell just by watching her work diligently on an assignment, head bent over in concentration, shoulders pulled in, creating, by the way, one incredibly deep cleavage. We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, leandiswade.com, sararcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. So one of the things... Uh, so as you told me once, uh, you said you have to be willing to tap into your emotions and revisit things that are perhaps unpleasant when you are 
a writer. And I'm wondering what was, what were the unpleasant parts of what you had to dive into here in writing this book? Well, it was very hard. You know, when I was writing it along and along, it doesn't seem as hard. When I went back and read, you know, Hazel's life and what she endures, you know, really just one difficulty and trauma after another, it just almost made me cry. And I created the character. And yet I know it's real. I I know that lives are lived like this and just lived day to day, just trying to survive. And um, it it became kind of hard on me emotionally, um, really in retrospect, when I, after I had written it. But Hazel is a girl with a lot of hope. And though her circumstances are difficult, she does have help. She has her own willpower. And by golly, she grows an awful lot in this novel. Yeah, it, it does... Uh tug at the heart uh, at places, uh, but also there's a little bit of uh, excitement in the book, maybe pulling from some modern day uh, cultural battles that are going on. You've got uh, this scene where the reverend doesn't much like what uh, Angela is teaching in her advanced placement class, and he comes in and he uh, catches her. I'm just looking at page 37 of the book here. catches her uh, off guard and says, lewd literature. And she says, I beg your pardon? Uh, And then uh, he says, this story you taught is just full of disgusting language and indecency, and it's going to be removed from the curriculum. I want to make sure no other so-called literature like this is presented to my daughter or other young people. Um, And she's thinking so much for this parent's diplomacy, uh, and she looks at her principal, but uh, instead of (laughs) defending her, here are the words that says, he appeared to have swallowed a live mouse and was trying to force it down his gullet. So, (laughs) and that kind of brings to light what's kind of going on in schools today where you've got, uh, I don't know whether it's the Moms for Liberty or whoever else is out there, they want to pull a book or they want to pull this, and you're a teacher. You've been in the classroom for many years. Um, I don't really understand what's going on here because, uh, as, as the teacher says in this scene here, you know, if there's something you don't want your daughter to see, you know, tell me. But you know, this is this is literature, right? And it's a college course. It's a, right. you know, it's a college course. But the father doesn't. You know, he's he's inflexible. Um, he wants his daughter to stay in a in the class instead of to drop down to say honors English, but he wants to control the the curriculum at the same time. Um, I said there were a couple of things in this novel that were based on life. One was the crazy eights. The second was a father and, and a mother who challenged a piece of literature that I taught in my AP English class. And I, I had been, again, very fortunate. I had had very little trouble over the, all of my years teaching. Of course, I was in the college level most of the time, but I had not had much trouble with parents um, challenging me. And it, it made me feel incompetent. It made me feel like a worm. It made, you know, they tried to make me feel like I didn't know what I was doing. And I was a, I was a teacher with a master's degree and, 30 hours above that, um, you know, I, 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 know, I know in my head, in my heart, that I know what literature is proper to, 
teach these young people the human condition. But I was really, they really tried to bring me down. And in the end, the principal did support me, but he was blindsided also. Um, the, the man in real life was not a, was not a big old evangelical preacher or anything like that. I, I just made all that up. But it's, it's ironic because, again, that was an incident that had stayed with me from my teaching life. But since I wrote the book, all of this book censorship with these groups wanting to pull books out of libraries, wanting to tell pro professional teachers who've been to school to learn what to do, what they can and cannot teach. And it's, it's frightening. Um, it's, it's very frightening. And it's just, it was, I didn't really, it, it has really come to a head since I first wrote the book. It just happens that it really coincides with a lot of the, I don't know, divisiveness, I guess you'd say about um, what books should be read and, and what books should not be read that's currently going on. Yeah, and no, I get that parents should have a say in, in you know, what their children yes. are taught to some extent. Yes. But also am so, totally surprised and amazed at how often parents who don't know the first thing about teaching think that they know what's best, not just for their child, but for the entire yes, yes, commu yes. community. It's almost right. like putting a skill saw in the hand of somebody that didn't know a thing about carpentry. That's a you know? great metaphor. That's a perfect <laughs> metaphor, Landis. Yeah, I think, and I think that's what was at the heart of my anger and and just anger is that who who are they to know anything about really my discipline and what I'm teaching and and to question my choices because I would I would never offer students something inappropriate. Um, yeah. So we got that tension in the book. We got some uh, we got some romance tension in the book. We got some. We got some privilege to poverty tension in the book. Got a lot of tension in this book. Uh, let's shift real quick. A couple of time, a couple of questions on the writing life. Uh, okay. Since you published uh, Bells of Eli uh, and and now in the publication of this book, um, you've learned a lot more about the publishing business than you knew when you published Bells of Eli. What are some of the things that jump out at you that maybe you didn't know the first time around? Well, I'm, I have the same <clears throat> publisher for this right. novel that I had for my first novel, Mercer University Press, and and they are, are wonderful um, to work with. But I think since, I mean, it's 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 hard, you know. I mean, you're an, an, uh, an author of a very fine book yourself, of Deadly Declarations. Thank you. It's, it's, it's hard <laughs> to get yourself yeah. out there. Um, it, the, I guess there are just so many books being written for one thing and bookstores are, are kind of overwhelmed. But I, I have noticed in setting up the tour for the second book um, that bookstores are not as they're, they're more reluctant. Um, mm. And I'm told my publicist tells me, she says, ever since COVID, you know, they don't, they're not as likely to want to do events and do the, the work of putting on an event unless you are, in her words, a rock star. And by that, it doesn't mean how good a writer you are or aren't. It's, it's how well known you are. But how are you going to get known if you, can't get your, if you can't get out there? Right. Did your writing process change much between uh, Bells of Eli and this book? Not much. No, no. I, I, I wrote them. I actually wrote um, The Girl from the Red Rose Motel during COVID for the most mm -hmm. part. 
when I couldn't go on tour <laughs> with Bells for Eli because of the of the pandemic. But no, my I didn't. My writing process did not change a whole lot. I, I gave you know I had a bigger challenge um, structurally with the girl from the Red Rose Motel because I chose to tell it in three points of view because I wanted us to be able to get intimate and close with each of those three characters. And so that I had a lot, it was a lot harder for me to kind of keep up um, and not overlap and not say something that I had said before. So it, it structurally, I had more of a challenge with this book. So you're quoted in our Right Quote series because you were on the podcast before. It's one of our, uh, well, you quoted several of the books, but one of the quotes you have in there is, uh, is this. If your characters don't come alive, then nobody's going to care about them. And the best way to make characters come alive is through developing genuine emotions. Uh, how do you get yourself in that place to, to make that happen? A glass of wine to start with. <laughs> <laughs> you just, you have to, you, I believe that. With, you have to feel what your character feels and you have to be able to convey that to your readers. And if you don't, if you can't, then what's the book for? You know, you mm. can write a plot, but a plot's not going to be remembered. Not not really. I mean, there are a few just plot books that are remembered, but mostly we care about characters and what happens to them because we are human and we care about what happens to us as, as human beings. And I don't know exactly how I do it. Um, I knew Sterling would be my biggest challenge because how do I get into the head of a teenage boy? But I taught a whole lot of teenage <laughs> boys. Right. And I taught a lot of teenage boys who told me a lot of things over the years. So I think it was just, I think it's just my experience um, having been around a lot of teenagers, having been an English teacher myself that allowed me to be able to be who they are, so to speak. And, and just and then just letting go and letting it happen. That's great. I may have asked you this question before, but it's been a while since we talked, over 180 episodes ago, so I'll ask <laughs> it again. If you could tell your younger writing self something of value based on what you've learned along the way, given the uh, hard knocks of the writing process, uh, something that might uh, help your younger writing self uh, now that you know a little bit more about it, what would you tell her? I guess I'm, uh, I mean, as you know, I'm a, a mature age, shall we say. <laughs> we all are. <laughs> and I didn't publish, you know, my first novel until this right. mature age. And now here comes the second one at an even more mature age. I wrote a lot of short fiction over the years. And honestly, I don't know if I could have eked out the time to write more when I was younger. I mean, I taught full time. Teaching English is pretty labor intensive. I raised daughters, um, you know, but I guess I would tell my younger writing self, no matter what, find an hour every day to write. And I, I didn't do that. You know, I had so many other things pulling at me. I've always, I've always felt compelled to write, but I think I would try to write more. I think I would try to write more. I don't know if I could have written a novel at a younger age because I don't know if I could have found that kind of sustained time. But I would like to have tried. Well, good advice and uh, great uh, second novel here. And uh, looking forward to the next one. I'm sure there'll be another one down the road. But uh, 
Hey, Susie, thanks a lot for uh, for being on the podcast. Wes, thank you, Landis, for having me. It's just a whole lot of fun to talk to you, and I appreciate you telling folks about the girl from the Red Rose Motel. 